It's uh, really great to be here on Mother's Day, and um, who knows what day it is in two days' time, also related to women. Yeah, that's right. International Women's Day is celebrated annually um, every year on the 8th of March, and um, in some countries around the world, it's a huge um, deal, uh, so be sure to check out what's going on. So given uh, this time of year, given what today is, I suppose it's appropriate that I was given the um, topic women to talk about. It's a broad topic, um, and to be honest, I kind of thought, well, how am I going to, what am I going to talk about? How do I narrow that down? Because as I think about women, um, I can think about hundreds of different women that I know um, who've inspired me, who challenged me, and who um, have made me who I am today. And um, so it was overwhelming to think um, what to share. And that's not to mention all the other women that we have in the Bible and their stories and um, the incredible um, encounters that we see there that can inspire all of us. So I was thinking, what am I going to share? And um, I'm going to share a few stories this morning um, of different women that I know and also how I've seen God at work in their lives. I was asked, I think, to talk about women because I spend my days working with women, um, and I work with women who come from all around the world. Um, A little bit about me, when I was 23, um, I moved to Bangkok in Thailand um, to work for an organization called Nightlight that helps women out of prostitution and into alternative employment. My best friend from school, Cassie, some of you know her, um, she says on the first day of school, she asked me what I wanted to do when I was older, and I said to her, oh, I'm going to go to Thailand and help women out of prostitution. Um, Thankfully, uh, I quickly realized, I don't know how, that if I wanted to make any other friends, I probably should think of some other career choice and just, yeah, just pretend. So, um, anyway, I did move to Thailand, um, and I had an amazing five and a half years living and working in Bangkok, lived in a big red light district there called Nana. And um, over, over my first year there, really, um, the focus of my attention became the women who were trafficked into Bangkok, predominantly from Uzbekistan um, in Central Asia and um, women from Uganda in Africa, of which there are hundreds of women trafficked every year. My main role um, ended up being helping uh, with their um, aftercare and then helping them get home um, after they'd escaped from their situation. At the end of 2011, um, during 2011, um, we had a really stressful case uh, with two young Uzbek women, 19 years old, and one of them ended up having a breakdown as she thought about facing her trafficker in court. And it was during that time I thought, well, maybe I should move to Uzbekistan. You know, I've, I've come to Bangkok and I've, I've spent most of my time working with Uzbek women. Maybe I should move there instead. So I moved back to London and I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I ended up yeah, not moving to Uzbekistan, as you see. I'm now here four years, um, four years on, still in London. And at the moment, um, currently run a small little home, safe home in London called Ella's Home, um, which is the only safe house in London that offers long-term, holistic, community-based support um, for women who've been trafficked and who are recovering from sexual exploitation. A number of people here this morning helped get the home ready. We had to get the home ready within one week, 
um, and had to decorate the whole building. And I think there's a picture. Oh, I have to do the picture. Do I do that? Oh, there you go. So um, some of you in this room, the last time you saw this room had a hole in the ceiling. That's right, Liz. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we managed to transform it somehow within a week. And the latest resident just moved into this bedroom um, on Monday. Um, yeah, aside from the women that, at the home, I work with different women as well across London who have been isolated due to their trafficking experiences. The women are, are of all different nationalities, all different ages, all different personalities, um, but from them I have learned a great deal. And I don't think I can do justice this morning, I definitely can't do justice this morning to how incredible these women are, um, the things that they've endured and the things they've lived through. And I I'm yeah, worried about sounding trite, really, because without exaggeration, every day I'm in awe of what um, they're capable of, capable of having survived what they have. So as I thought about the women, um, the hundreds of women that I've known who've survived trafficking, the ones who have prostituted themselves, and the ones who are for whom they, that's still their reality, I thought of a number of different traits, um, different attributes that they share. Uh, these are these are um, traits that I see evidence in women that I work with on a daily basis. Of course, they're not, as, as I'm going to share, they're not attributes just um, unique to women, nor are they unique just to women who've been trafficked. Um, but I do believe these attributes are prominent in women who have endured a lot. Um, again, I found it difficult to narrow these down, but um, I'm going to share three quickly um, as a start. The first word um, I want to share, sacrificial. Because it's Mother's Day, I think it's very apt to share this, um, to talk about this trait of sacrificial love. So many of the women that I work with or have worked with are mothers, and they have given everything, literally their lives, um, to provide for their families. It is at times admirable, and then it is extremely heartbreaking. In talking about this trait, I also just want to address quickly um, the issue of trafficking and explain something about that. Trafficking doesn't just happen. Who's seen the movie Taken? Yes? Okay. Um, I, I get annoyed with films like that, get annoyed with that film in particular, um, because I think it does a disservice to women and men who have found themselves trapped and exploited and trafficked. Um, people are not simply kidnapped and stolen um, people are trafficked because of vulnerability. And um, vulnerability comes in various forms. It could be vulnerability of poverty, which is a huge factor, past abuse, lack of opportunities, lack of community. Um, those are what make people vulnerable to trafficking. In Thailand, where I worked, thousands upon thousands and upon thousands of Thai women end up in the sex industry. They do so predominantly to provide for their families. The story I've heard literally hundreds of times um, from Thai women in the red light district um, is that they hate what they're doing, but they have to provide for their families. As the woman in Thai culture, they are responsible pr for providing. And um, if they're not going to, then who's going to provide for their children? Then the African women that we used to meet on the streets of Bangkok, lots of them were tricked into prostitution. Others maybe came knowingly to the streets of Bangkok. Um, 
But again, whatever reason it was, it was all very similar. They were there to provide um, something for their families. So sacrificial love, an amazing quality, amazing attribute, but um, the terrible effects of poverty um, makes that love, um, can make that love ex- uh, exploitable in the most terrible way. The second trait or attribute I see in the women is resilience. I see, again, I see resilience every day. If I had to go through even a small fraction of what I've heard from some of the women I work with, I'm sure I would not be able to carry on. They've had to go through hell. Some of them continue to go through hell. And um, others, they may have got out of their situation, but they still live with those hellish memories. Just this past week, on Wednesday, we had a new lady move into the house, and I sat with her, and I had to ask her a few questions about her experience, um, because her solicitor wanted to know for her asylum claim, and it was very difficult. She was in tears through a lot of it. Um, She told me how women in her country, which I won't mention because I think it's being recorded, um, are of no value, and... She said, you know, she said to me, just go to my country and you'll see. Nobody cares about women. Then she carried on. And near the end of a conversation, she had a panic attack. Um, I knew that she was susceptible to these, so it wasn't complete shock. But um, she did go unconscious for about 10 minutes. When she came around, she was very exhausted and she just had to go and sleep. So the next day or a day later... um, We talked about that, and she said to me, I can't think about my past. I can't talk about it, um, because that's what will happen. But she said, I'm I'm determined for the future, and every day I'm going to think about the future instead. And I I was just amazed, again, at her strength and her resilience. On Friday, just, uh, yeah, two days ago, um, I messaged a young British woman that I have known for about three years now. And I told her that I was um, speaking this morning on women. And I asked maybe uh, if I could share her story, um, because I think of her story is probably one of the most inspiring that I've come across. Kate um, is a British girl. It's not her real name. Actually, none of the names I'm going to use are real names. Um, And from from a child, um, from a young age, she was put into care. And from... Uh, that time to when she was 18, she went through 27 different foster homes. When she went to university, she had no family, she had no support. She met a guy online, and um, she was hating university, so she, um, yeah, she was chatting to this guy, and he came over to visit her. And then, um, uh, I think, yeah, a few weeks passed, and he said, oh, why don't you come over to visit me in his country in Europe? So she went over there, and um, from that point on, she became his slave. And things I can't, yeah, I wouldn't dare mention this morning or talk about, but she, the things she had to do for him and for other me- men are just horrific. After several months, he um, began maybe to trust her a little bit, and he would leave her alone at certain times. And she um, recognized the pattern. This girl is incredibly intelligent, actually, and she... Um, yeah, after a little bit of time, she got the courage. So after about a year, she got the courage to escape. Um, one day, she got her, uh, stole her passport back and some money, some money she thought enough to get her um, back into the UK. 
She said that she hadn't really been given nothing to wear the time that she'd been there. She had a random nightie and a pair of shorts. And so she was really worried going to the airport, like, what are people going to say when she turns up, you know, not wearing this very strange outfit? And then she was really worried, like, what's going to happen? Because she, she was shy. She was like, what's going to happen when I come back um, into the UK? And everyone's going to ask me questions about where I've been and what's been happening. And she was really terrified about this. But actually, when she came back into the UK and t- through immigration, nothing was asked of her. Um, so she got on a train to her social worker's house, uh, uh, sorry, social worker's office, and her social worker said to her, what are you doing here? I thought you were at university. And um, Kate said no, you know, and explained what had um, gone on. As it turned out, nobody at all knew that Kate had gone missing, not even, um, even though she'd been at university when she had gone missing. So when Kate first got in touch with me, um, it had been, I think she'd been back in the UK for seven months and she'd been hiding um, in a flat um, in, in the north of the country. And I, got, I was working for a little charity and I just got an email and it simply said, how will I ever be normal again? I didn't know if it was a spam email or what, but anyway, we began chatting through email and then on the phone and then I met her a couple of months after. And when I first met Kate, you could see like she was physically carried um, what she had been through. She was all hunched over. Um, she couldn't look me in the eye. Um, which actually later, only recently she's told me that she was never allowed to look anybody in the eye and that's why she found it so difficult to uh, do that. So she'd, anyway, she'd been hiding away, as I said. And um, so I said to her, well, if you want to be normal again, if you want to get back to normal life, you should um, get into education or get into work. Um, I discovered how smart she was, and I, so I really encouraged her to continue and pursue a degree. She is now uh, partway through a degree. Last year, she finished top of her year with a first. Um, At the same time, she holds down a really good job. She's got into running. She ran a marathon a few months ago. Um, When I first met her, she told me, I'm never leaving the country again. She actually ripped up her passport, threw it away. Um, But last summer, she went on holiday with some friends who know nothing of what she's been through. Um, I mean, if I had all the rest of this morning, I could tell you story after story about how amazing this girl is and her resilience and courage every single day um, uh, battling what she's been through. The last attribute to mention quickly is generosity. Um, Blown away again every day by generosity of women, women who have endured a lot, women who've had everything taken from them um, and who still choose to share and be be gracious and be generous. This is, oh, not that one. That's a meal I was made this week. I always say to the women, please don't make me food, but uh, they insist on cooking incredible food and sharing it. They don't have much. They have a very small allowance, um, but what they have, they want to share. Um, Yeah. Uh, So as I think... Uh, about the women that I've worked with and I've described briefly to you some of their attributes, their sacrificial love, their resilience, their generosity, and that's not to mention their bravery, their resourcefulness, their compassion. Um, I hope it is shocking to you as it is to me that people can be so cruel to these women. Um, It's an honor to get to work with them and 
um, yeah, I just think it's an amazing privilege that I have to to meet with these women, learn from them, um, and grow with them. But yet, every day I see the battle they face um, from society. You know, they uh, face possibly some of them being deported or whatever. They have battles every single day, despite the hardships they've gone through. Um, And what I see really is that we don't really care, our society doesn't really care um, for those who have have suffered so much. I mean, again, just need to look at the refugee crisis. And um, yeah, that's kind of what these women, I feel, are told by society, that they don't really matter. They might have mattered at one point when they were um, valuable for selling their body, but now that they have to recover, now that they've got physical wounds or emotional scars, um, there aren't the resources to help them get over that. So I didn't really ever plan to open a safe house in London. Um, I wouldn't have imagined there would be a need to be in London. As I said, I thought I'd be in Asia. Um, and I really didn't expect, especially the, the high demand that there would be. Uh, like literally every day, um, we get requests like for, uh, for yeah, people to come into our service. And I keep having to say, I'm really sorry, we're at capacity. Um, and yeah, I, we've only been open since January. But then also, also all the other women that we are now working with on an outreach support basis. Um, so we opened... Um, Ella's home. I'll tell you how that came about and the name and why it's called that. Um, I've been uh, back in the UK for about a year when I got an email out of the blue from a young Russian Uzbek woman, Ella. And she is somebody I met in a brothel in Bangkok. As I said, every year hundreds of Uzbek Russian women are trafficked into Bangkok. And I got to know her quite well because she'd been in and out of Bangkok over several years. She'd been, she's about my age, but she's been in prostitution since she was a teenager. And maybe because she is um, ethnically Russian and she sat with a lot of ethnically Uzbek women, she was always on her own. So I got quite a lot of time to speak with her. And so before I left Thailand, I shared my email address with her. I didn't expect necessarily to hear from her, but I, you know, thought I should do that anyway. And I had a few emails from her over the year um, that I first back in, uh, back here in in London. Just, you know, I'm here, I'm there, whatever. Um, And then just around Christmas 2012, uh, maybe shortly after that, I got an email saying, hi, Emily, I'm in London. Um, We shared contact information, and a couple of weeks after that, she called me one night, and she said, Emily, can you come and meet me? I need to go to hospital. Something's wrong with my mind. Um, I went to meet her at a tube station in London with a friend, and it was quickly very apparent that she um, was in a difficult state. Uh, She was laughing inappropriately. She couldn't look couldn't look at me really. She was, I don't know, very skin and bone and yeah, it was really not very well. Um, it's just, yeah, as an aside, very common for women who have gone through those sort of um, issues, yeah, being involved in prostitution, being involved in that dehumanization um, to experience mental health issues, um, health, health issues and, you know, physical abuse and the damage is very severe. So when she called for help, I um, didn't really know what to do, um, didn't know where to send her, really. Um, 
And essentially, over three months, she was here, and uh, we tried. Yeah, there was all sorts of things that we tried, and there was lots of closed doors to her. Um, she wasn't prepared to talk about her trafficking experience. One, she wasn't in the um, right mental health to do that. She was very paranoid. She kept thinking, you know, that maybe um, she was in Russia, and she was like, I can't talk about the people who brought me here. Um, she told me they were good people. They waxed her legs. They did her nails. Again, a very mis. Um, confused, misunderstanding, having been in exploitation her whole life. When people are nice to you, you think they're being nice, but, you know, they were actually using her. So, um, yeah, there was was nowhere for her because she couldn't get into the government-funded safe houses. um, Because she wouldn't speak, she wasn't eligible for that. So, um, she, what she wanted was to go to hospital. She knew that she needed to see somebody. We spent 10 hours at St. Thomas's, just over the road. Um, she was seen by a psychiatrist who put her in for observation. Three days later, the social worker called me from the hospital and said, we're discharging your friend today. I said, my friend's not better. Um, I said, there's nowhere for her to go. I explained her whole history. Um, and she said, well, I'm really sorry if there's nowhere for her to go. And I've told a number of you this story before. Um, if there's nowhere for her to go, can she go back to where she came from? I said, that's a brothel. She said, yes, um, I realize that, but if it's not an abusive situation. Uh, what I learned through that whole experience and then actually through the, yeah, during that whole experience and um, in the months that followed, because I kept thinking maybe I found the one girl who didn't fit the system was that there are many women who fall through the gaps. And essentially, as I have already said, um, society places little value on them. Because if they were valued, there would be be the places for them to go to recover. And then, um, just to finish, or coming in to finish, um, in in sharp contrast to that... um, uh, to those who perceived a very little, we see Jesus' attitude. Um, there are so many stories in the New Testament of Jesus with women, and actually they're, they're amazing stories, um, and they all teach us something of how he values women. I'm going to read just one, which I think is going to appear on the screen from Luke 7. Um, One of the Pharisees asked him over for a meal, Jesus over for a meal. He went to the Pharisee's house and sat down at the dinner table. Just then, a woman of the village, the town harlot, having learned that Jesus was a guest in the home of the Pharisee, came with a bottle of very expensive perfume and stood at his feet, weeping, raining tears on his feet. Letting down her hair, she dried his feet, kissed them, and anointed them with with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man was the prophet I thought he was, he would have known what kind of woman this is who is falling all over him. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Oh, tell me. Two men were in debt to a banker. One owed 500 silver pieces, the other 50. Neither of them could pay up, and so the banker cancelled both debts. Which of the two would be more grateful? Simon answered, I suppose the one who was forgiven the most. That's right, said Jesus. 
Then turning to the woman, but speaking to Simon, he said, Do you see this woman? I came to your home. You provided no water for my feet, but she rained tears on my feet and dried them with her hair. You gave me no greeting, but from the time I arrived, she hasn't quit kissing my feet. You provided nothing for freshening up, but she has soothed my feet with perfume. Impressive, isn't it? She was forgiven many, many sins, and so she is very, very grateful. If the forgiveness is minimal, the gratitude is minimal. Then he spoke to her, I forgive your sins. That set the dinner guest talking back behind his back. Who does he think he is forgiving sins? He ignored them and said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. When we look at this passage, we see that Jesus um, doesn't scold the woman who is perceived by the others there to be sinful. He doesn't pull away from her. Um, He doesn't make her feel like she is a waste of space. And he isn't embarrassed by her. The woman um, who anoints Jesus' feet is welcomed by Jesus, despite what she's done and despite what others think of her. The incredible thing that I have found is that Jesus still does the same today. And I've witnessed this time and time again um, in ways that often take me um, by surprise and are sometimes even outside of my understanding Maybe because Jesus' response is in such sharp contrast to the way some women have been treated, he is that appealing. One Uzbek woman um, who we helped escape in 2009 from her trafficker, um, she still messages me at least once a month to this day. And she calls me her James Bond, so that's why I like. Um, But anyway, um, when we helped her escape, she... Um, was full of anger. She was actually extremely angry at me, a lot of it, because I told her we could help her home within a couple of weeks, but because of a complication with her paperwork, and um, actually she ended up having to um, go to court against her trafficker, it ended up being three months that she had to stay in Bangkok. So she was very, very angry. She was very angry that she had, you know, worked for it was a female trafficker, actually, the woman that she'd worked for and had nothing to show for it. She, yeah, everything made her angry. And she wasn't particularly nice to be around, actually. Um, uh, she, didn't, she wouldn't talk to me and, yeah, was, yeah, didn't like me at all. And then something happened because she had a bit of time to wait and she was um, waiting in the, the house that we had there in Bangkok for her. Um, she... Started, she picked up a Bible one day and started reading it in English. And then she could read Russian and Uzbek. So we had a Russian and Uzbek Bible and she was reading it in that. And she, I remember one day she said to me, she said, I can't put this Bible down. I can't stop reading about this Jesus. Um, another day she was like, why had nobody ever told me about this Jesus before? Before she flew home, after we got her passport, she was baptized the day before um, she went back to Uzbekistan. Then just um, last week, one of the women in our home, in Ella's home, um, encountered Jesus for a second time. She isn't a Christian. Um, she doesn't have any understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And she, I don't think she's really ever heard much about who Jesus is. And yet, she now says she's heard Jesus speak to her twice. This probably sounds unusual to a lot of you and maybe unbelievable 
um, even. And uh, as I said, it was kind of outside of my understanding. I was surprised too when she said it to me. Um, However, it happened during a session that uh, we have somebody who comes in to do art therapy with the women. And this woman, the woman, Bonnie, who does art therapy, she said she felt um, led to pray for, I'll call the woman Holly, um, because Holly has some real bad physical pain at the moment. So she asked Holly if she could pray for her. Um, And then what happened next surprised both of them. Um, Holly says that she just felt Jesus speak to her and give her comfort um, about her current situation and all that she has um, been experiencing and to help her with her pain. She told me later that his voice was gentle and it was kind and it was beautiful. And I, I said also, how do you know it's Jesus? She said, I don't know, I just know it was Jesus. Um, and then it actually happened again last week and she was yeah, really encouraged. Um, she's been really encouraged by that. So I've seen that Jesus is there for the broken and hurting and um, those who in their humility can more easily hear from Jesus. I've often been asked why I do this work or some people think maybe it's hard work or um, I don't know. But um, I can say truly, as, I, as I've shared, like just some stories of some amazing women and some of their attributes, you know, that women who, as I have said, give that, have given their lives sacrificially for their family, women who are resilient, women who are generous, women who are kind, women who are brave. Um, and I've also seen God with those women. Um, I believe God holds those women in very high esteem just as he loves men too. And he is there for all the broken and hurting. Um, and so that's where I want to be with those women who, who um, want, want and need to experience Christ because that's where I think um, Christ is. I'm going to finish with a quote by Bono. I think it would be a lot cooler if it wasn't by Bono, but anyway, here it is. So I'll just read it because I haven't put it on the PowerPoint. God is in the slums, in the cardboard boxes where the poor play house. God is in the silence of a mother who has infected her child with a virus that will end both their lives. God is in the cries heard under the rubble of war. God is in the debris of wasted opportunity and lives. And God is with us if we are with them.